Is kidnapping a young lady to try and earn a seat in Parliament ever a good idea? 19th century Englishman Edward Gibbon Wakefield apparently thought so. On today's Footnoting History, we cover part one of this man's strange life. Hi everyone, this is Liz. And a very excited Christine. And welcome to Footnoting History. Today we have the first of our two-part series on Edward Gibbon Wakefield because we love him so much. Why do we love him? Well, he was a rather dubious character who lived in the first half of the 19th century and whose life touched England, South Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Why does it take two weeks to tell his story? Well, because he lived a very dichotomous life and too much of it was interesting for us to limit it to one week. He needs two. He does. He really does. And that's why we're doing it. This man somehow managed to cultivate two very different legacies. First, as a convicted felon scorned throughout England. And second, as the contributor of new methods for colonizing South Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Ah. I know. The result was an almost Jekyll and Hyde-like life. So this week, we're going to discuss the abduction that went astray. And next week, we'll broach life during and after prison, what we like to call the colonization phase. But let's just say one thing. It would be best if you imagine this part as having a massive parenthetical. Let's call it a cautionary tale, or Ooh, yes. how not to win a seat in Parliament. Exactly, Edward. Yes. Mm -hmm. Our Edward Gibbon Wakefield was what you would call today a troubled youth. He was born on March 20th, 1796, in England, to Edward and Susanna Gibbon. He was their second child and the first of several sons. As an aside, if the Edward Gibbon part of Edward Gibbon Wakefield sounds familiar to you, that's probably because, yes, he is a distant relation of the 18th century historian Edward Gibbon. Gibbon's The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire was sort of a capital letters big deal. But, you know, he died a few years before our Edward was born, so I guess we have to say that they never actually cross paths, even though they share part of a name. Anyway, back to our protagonist. Edward's father, also Edward, was not exactly the greatest at managing things, and his mother didn't really have good health. So most of his childhood was spent living with his paternal grandmother Priscilla in Tottenham. Priscilla, it seems, worried a little bit, well, maybe a little bit more than a little bit, like yeah. a lot, about her grandson, and she had good reason. Over the course of his school career, he was known to be quarrelsome and disagreeable. Well, this meant that he didn't last for very long at Mr. Hayes School or Westminster School before begrudgingly being sent to Edinburgh's Royal High School, where he finished his education. Thankfully, Priscilla left behind a diary that tells us exactly how much she worried about him, and we really love diaries in this oh podcast. God. After Edward left his first school, she recorded the following, quote, my thoughts much occupied with my little Edward, whom I dearly love, but whose inflexible, pertinacious temper makes me fear for his own happiness and that of those connected to him. Yeah, that's really what you want your grandmother to say about you. That's exactly how you want to be marked down for posterity. Yeah. So Edward's father also recorded similar concerns when Edward finished his education. So it's not just Graham's. It's not just Graham's sitting at home no, it's saying something whole family thing. Boy. Yeah. And finally, when it came time to find him a job, his father again concerned. Luckily, though, after a bit of bouncing around, including a stint at Gray's Inn where he was supposed to study law, he secured a job working for the Honorable William Hill, British envoy to the court of Torin, 
who would be one of Edward's lifelong supporters. From 1813 until 1815, he traveled around the continent working for Hill, serving as a king's messenger in post-Waterloo, France, and taking a minor job at the Foreign Office in Paris. It wasn't until 1816 and the death of his mother that he returned to London and took up living with Hill on Prince's Street, Hanover Square. And this, my friends, is where we have, dun-dun-dun, the beginning of Edward's questionable romantic tactics. Indeed. Living across from Edward was the, so far, innocent Paddle family. Mrs. Paddle was the widow of a wealthy East India merchant named Thomas, whose death left his daughter Eliza a ward of the Chancery. How do we want to describe that? Um, a ward of the Chancery just means that the she is, has so much money in a trust for her that the government wants to make sure they don't lose a piece of it, so the king and the government is basically in control of if she can get married or not. There we go. It also just so happened that Eliza, who was then only 16, had a window that lined up exactly with a window frequently looked out of by Edward from his house. Now, there is no record that tells us exactly the moment when Eliza and Edward met, but somehow they began a secret, and therefore probably very exciting, courtship. Mm -hmm. Presumably through the use of notes and seductive window-to-window -window communication aided by their servants. Ooh, Mm-hmm. Upstairs, downstairs. That's why we have them. In June of 1816, with the secret relationship well underway, Mrs. Paddle took her daughter to vacation in Tunbridge Wells, some 36 miles from London. Aware of this, Edward used the relationship he cultivated with Eliza's servants to learn of a time when Mrs. Paddle would leave her daughter alone at their Tunbridge lodgings. Ooh. That time arrived on June 13th, and Edward took full advantage of it. He took a carriage to the paddles, picked up the waiting Eliza, and began their elopement to Gretna Green. Now, Gretna Green is a famous spot still. Um, well, if you listen to Lucy and my podcast on 20th century British mystery novels, Gretna Green continues to show up as the place to elope. So now the romantic attempt at eloping was not going to be an easy one because Mrs. Paddle learned of her daughter's disappearance mere hours after the couple left. But they were aided yet again by another servant, the family coachman, who claimed Mrs. Paddle's carriage was broken and her pursuit was thwarted. Basically, Grandma and Dad might not have liked Edward, but all of the servants did. Family friends were dispatched to help, but they took off in the wrong direction. Add to this that Eliza wrote a letter to her mother indicating she was in Calais when she was really on her way to Scotland, and suffice to say the Paddle family wasn't having a good week. No, no, they were not. No, unfortunately, neither was our supposed-to-be-happy couple. The Paddles had on their side the Lord Chancellor since Eliza was a ward of the Chancery, right? As such, an appeal to him resulted in the springing up of signs looking for Edward and had to put the couple on high alert lest they be apprehended. They didn't give up, however, and three weeks later, dirty, destitute, and having taken the roads less traveled, they dragged themselves into Edinburgh to get married. No, it wasn't Gretna Green as they had planned, but at least it was Scotland. That's true. You gotta do what you gotta do, right? Mm -hmm. And Scotland was the most important part of their plan. It would become even more crucial later on in the abduction case. Because you see, at this time, Scotland was the place to go for clandestine marriages. In England, there was this annoying bit of legislation called Hardwick's Marriage Act of 1753. The part of this act that bothered Edward and Eliza was that it required parental consent for all marriages of parties under the age of 21, which neither of them had at all. I mean, no. their families didn't even know they were together, so how could they have parental consent? 
If you broke this law, the punishment was severe. It could even lead to transportation, which meant being sent to another country, or a colony, I should say, where you would probably serve as part of the labor force. Scotland, however, was not subject to this English law, so crossing the border and marrying was the best option a runaway couple had. Only then you had to hope that your families would accept it after the fact. So, you know, out of reach from the law of England, Edward married Eliza on July 27, 1816, in the Church of Scotland. The now happy Mr. and Mrs. Wakefield returned to London to face the proverbial music. There, unsurprisingly, the Wakefield family embraced Eliza. I mean, what's not she, to like? No, I mean, she was universally seen as, right, warm, loving, and you know what? Edward married her, so they were probably just glad that he had another half. I know. Maybe somebody to, to keep him in line and temper him a little bit. But now, Edward used what would become his forte, the power of speech and writing, to attempt a reconciliation with Eliza's family. He duly convinced Mrs. Paddle that the couple was in love, and with her help and that of his good friend Hill, they petitioned the Lord Chancellor to recognize their marriage in England. In a convenient twist, the Lord Chancellor himself had conducted a marriage clandestinely in Scotland. So, who is he to judge, right? Yeah, but also, why would you choose the guy to overlook these things who obviously has a soft spot for clandestine marriages in Scotland? Yeah, I don't know. That's yeah. But it worked out well for Wakefield, because on August 10th, the couple was remarried before their families in London, and Edward was set up with a £600 per year income from Thomas Paddle's estate. And that, that was enough to live happily for... Yeah, he's doing okay. Yeah. So, by all accounts, Edward and Eliza were very happy together, and you might think, oh, their story is done, right? I mean, they moved to Italy, where Edward worked under the Honorable Algernon Percy. They enter Italian society, and they quickly spend more than they were taking, and oops, but, you know, it happens. Nevertheless, this was when Edward decided that his goal in life was to win a seat in Parliament, despite not even being able to afford to move back to England. But hey, dreams are dreams, and this one he shared with his father, who was also hoping to win a seat, making, I guess, a team of Wakefields in Parliament. But on a personal front, the couple did have some happy times, too, you know, aside from the no money thing, which is that they welcomed a daughter named Susan Priscilla, but they called her Nina, of course, in 1817 while they lived on the continent. In early 1820, they finally returned to England, but by July, Edward's world was crushed. Yes. On June 25th, Eliza gave birth to a son, Edward Jerningham, which you would think would also be happy. But complications from the birth meant that while Edward gained a little boy, he lost the wife who made him so happy on July 5th after only four years of marriage. And also, in a case of bad timing, shortly before her 21st birthday, when the couple would have received even more money from the family estate. So now, Edward was a widower with two children, a poor financial situation, and not at all close to his parliamentary goal. Finally, 1826, six years as a widower, Edward, now 30, got antsy about his future and needed to secure a significant upswing in finances. What he got was help from his stepmother, Frances, whose father, Dr. Davies, was well known in Macclesfield. When Dr. Davies innocently told his daughter about, quote, Ellen Turner of Shrigley Hall, the only child of William Turner, a successful owner of a calico business in Macclesfield, Edward paid attention. Soon, he and his younger brother William, with the help of a loan from his stepmother, as well as the use of her ears and eyes for information, put Edward's second great marriage plan into action. 
So it was that on March 7, 1826, the Ladies' Seminary in Liverpool received a messenger named Tevnot. Once received by the school's mistress, he provided a letter presuming to be from one Dr. John Ainsworth. The letter requested the immediate return home of Ellen Turner, whose mother suffered, quote, a sudden attack of paralysis. Though Tevnot was questioned by both the mistress and Ellen, all parties seemed to be accepting of the notion that the strange carriage belonged to Dr. Ainsworth and that Ellen was to be reunited with her father in Manchester before proceeding to her mother's side, and off the young girl went. In Manchester, though, instead of meeting up her father, she met up with, quote, Captain Wilson and his brother, hmm, we don't know who that is either. So weird. And they said that they would be the ones to take her to meet her father. The charade did not last long, and soon Edward revealed his true identity, and it was not that he was at all familiar to Ellen because they had never met before. Mm. Mm-hmm. He also told Ellen that her mother was not ill and that he was an associate of her father's. Also not true. Strange as it might seem, though, you know, Ellen took it all in stride. The various people they encountered along their journey recalled that she was in a great mood and they laughed a lot, mostly because Edward did everything he could to make her like him. So he kind of worked his courtship backwards. Steal the girl, then get her to like you. Anyway, he was successful. He he was successful, and he did plan on making her his wife. So, you know, why not? Later on in his life, he said that marriages, it is said, are made in heaven. Ours was made by the first two hours of conversation. So as much as you want to look at it as he abducted this girl... He didn't seem to do it with malicious intent. He actually wanted to marry her and make her happy. He just didn't want her to have a choice in doing so. Right. Well, okay, and that may have been the case that they got along, but it didn't stop Ellen from growing anxious when she reached Kendall and still hadn't seen her father. This, though, was where Edward went in for the metaphorical kill. This is where he really starts to forget the your mother has paralysis. Now we're going even more early 19th century England fresh from being embroiled in events like the loss of the American colonies, was more pressingly involved in the Napoleonic Wars and had an economy that wasn't doing too well. Add to that the increase in the industrialization of the textile trade and hand laborers of the North weren't exactly having a financial boom. Edward gently reminded Ellen that her father had lost a lot of money when two northern banks collapsed. He embellished this to say that his uncle had given Mr. Turner a loan that he could not repay. Having listed Shrigley as the security for his loan, it was looking like they were going to lose the family seat. The only way to save Shrigley was for Ellen to marry, therefore taking the estate out of her father's hands and beyond the reach of Edward's uncle, so said Edward. Exactly. So what better candidate for there for such a marriage match than Edward? None, of course. Ellen, quite smartly, said she would only consider such a thing upon seeing her father. No slouch there. No, no, she knew. She knew she had to make sure this was all legit. But her father was not to be seen. Oh, no. To work his way around this, Edward relied on his brother, William. When the carriage arrived at Carlisle, William ducked into an inn and came out giving Ellen amazing news. He had just seen her father. She could not see him herself because he was hiding from the sheriffs. And Mr. Grimsditch was with him and they couldn't risk being found out. Right, Grimsditch, the family lawyer. That's right. The lawyer was helping her father hide from the sheriffs who wanted to take back the estate because he couldn't repay his debts. However, Grimsditch, who wasn't actually there but we're pretending was, was kind enough to give William a letter for Ellen 
begging her to marry Edward and save the family. Somehow this worked to convince Ellen, and she consented to the marriage in order to be the savior of the Turner clan. Now, the cool thing about this is that they weren't totally stupid. I mean, they may have been pretending that somebody was there who wasn't there. Mm -hmm. But they did realize that Ellen was clever enough to know if they forged her father's signature. So they used the handwriting of Grimsditch instead because they knew Ellen would not be able to identify that that was a forgery. Now, you know, no longer hindered by silly things like the truth... The couple crossed the border into Gretna Green like hundreds before them and were married at Gretna Hall by Reverend Lang, the resident blacksmith priest known for his love of bubbly. After, I assume, having a drink with the nice reverend, Mm -hmm. they set off again to return to London. This sounds like a lot of traveling, and let's face it, you know, it was, especially when it relied entirely on horses and carriages. In fact, most of the times that they stopped and the people that they encountered were entirely because they needed to freshen up the horses, because they can only travel so far, you know, they're not machines that you just fill back up again. With the amount of time that they had to change, they were on the road for three days straight and stopped in almost 20 different towns. To illustrate this, I used Google Maps to plot out their route. If you're interested in seeing how long it would take you to follow in their footsteps with your modern car, we're posting the picture on footnotinghistory.com in the entry for this podcast. Because we know so, you, you want to do this. You want to recreate the journey. I, I want to do it. So I assume that somebody else out there would like to see the list of towns where they stopped. If you're I listening mean, to this, you probably are that person as well. Right. But for the moment, we're not driving in the 21st century. We're wondering what could possibly go wrong in this ingenious plan. How about the Turners finding out? Mr. Turner learned about his daughter's marriage when the real Grimsditch, again, if I become a lawyer, totally the name I'm taking, when the real Grimsditch showed him a mention of it in the newspaper. So that's it. They didn't even know she was missing from school. Okay? This is not like where, you know, he took his first wife and they disappeared and within a few hours the family was in a frenzy. This was, did not even know the girl had left school. Convinced it was a mistake, he checked with the school in Liverpool and upon learning that his daughter was not there, set off straight away for London with his lawyer, of course, and two of Ellen's uncles. By the time they reached the metropolis, Edward had taken Ellen to the safety of foreign soil in Calais. You'll notice that a lot of these places' names kind of come up again, such when Edward and they ran away, his first wife said, we've gone to Calais, when really they had gone to Scotland. Well, now they've gone to Calais. From their hotel in France, Edward wrote to Mr. Turner explaining the situation and hoping he would recognize their marriage. It didn't work. No. No. Soon the, the semi-reckoning happened. Mr. Turner remained in England, but Ellen's uncles, accompanied by a police officer and holding a warrant, showed up in Calais. There, Edward met them with grace and dignity, and when he saw he would not get his way, he allowed them to see Ellen and break the news to her. That must have been fun. Now aware of the truth of the matter, her opinion of her husband changed, and she willingly accompanied her family back to England, having called our Edward a brute. Now remember, this poor girl first being told that her mother was paralyzed, not true. Then, family home's going to be repossessed, not true. There remained a problem. English legal authority did not extend to France. Edward, eager to remain in a promising light as much as possible, promised to return to England after seeing his children, who were still in Paris. He also swore up and down, which Ellen and everyone involved verified, that the marriage was not consummated, so they didn't sleep together, and that he treated her with the utmost respect. This did not really make Mr. Turner feel better. 
He yeah. turned no. He turned to his friend Thomas Lee, member of Parliament and owner of nearby Lime Hall, to help him devise a way to lure Edward back to England. It also didn't help when Edward wrote a letter to Mr. Turner reminding him of his gentlemanly behavior towards his daughter. I love that. I love mm-hmm. that so much. I know. I'm sorry that I abducted her, but mm-hmm. remember, I treated her well. Right. Didn't sleep with her, just stole her from school and lied to her repeatedly. But all the while giving her everything that she wanted because she was mm-hmm. going to be my wife. Exactly. I do love the gentlemanly abductor. And, you know, although he didn't have to do it, and he could have stayed in France forever, mm-hmm. he did as he said, and he returned to England after seeing his children. It is possible, though, that his motivation for returning at the start of April of that year was hastened when he learned that his brother was arrested. And although, out on bail, he was charged for his role in helping Edward abduct Ellen. Either way, his friends told him to run away to America, but instead, by May 16th, Edward was near Macclesfield, where he turned himself in. After a brief hearing, he was remanded to Lancaster Castle Jail to await his trial for abducting the Turner heiress, which he did, obviously, in a gentlemanly fashion. Yeah, I really can't argue that. He did, while Lancaster and Cheshire were suffering through a summer drought, Edward had a private cell where he was able to read, write, and answer all the fan mail he received. Because, yes, yeah. of course. I mean, let's face it, Christine's writing him fan mail now. So I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I am. Centuries later, fan mail. I heard, or I should say I read, that he had very beautiful blue eyes. I'm okay with that. Yes, fan mail from ladies who thought him the dashing romantic hero. Outside of his cell, the papers were busy preparing for his trial, including one rather funny one to us, not to him so much, but to us, a moment where some of them put out the charges against him were dropped. Yeah, they lied. Therefore, the witnesses waiting for the trial went home only to have to be subpoenaed back again. In fact, they would go through a series of trials before the ordeal was finally finished. The first round took place at the Lancaster Seas that began on August 8th, 1826. Well, August 8th. It's my birthday. <laughs> there you go. Now you all know. Send gifts. Everyone and their mother was in town, including the Reverend Lang, that drink-loving blacksmith priest. And this is, again, mini-series, people. Mini-series. By the end of the Assize, four things had happened. One. Edward's proper trial was to be held at the spring assize of the following year, and William fled before he could be told if his trial was being postponed as well. Some argue it was to avoid being tried before his brother, but there's no proof of that reasoning. Right, because they thought that if he was tried before his brother, Mm -hmm. the whole defense of the case would already be out there. Right. And they didn't want that to happen. They want Edward's case. if they could somehow get Edward off, then William could also, obviously, be gotten off too, yes. Right, yes. Two. The court realized far too many people were interested in this trial and saw that this case would be heard in the Shire Court to avoid the mass crowding endured during this one. Three, charges were officially leveled against Edward, William, and their stepmother, Frances, who was now declared a conspirator in the case. Yes. Four, Edward finally released on bail, allowing him, so the papers reported, to promenade unashamedly around where the Turners were staying. Fast forward now, if you will, to March 23rd, 1827, the long-awaited day when the trial would finally take place for the Wakefield brothers and their stepmother, all of which were being called a family gang and the like by the press. No one denied the guilt of Edward, nor that his brother helped him, so the majority of the focus was on whether or not it was done by force and how much Francis was involved in the proceedings. The thing about whether or not it was force is an interesting conundrum. Ellen herself admitted that she acted freely. 
In her appearance at the court, she said that she believed she was helping her father, and therefore she went along with everything. Though it is certainly fraud, does that constitute force? She was not bound and put into a carriage, nor was she coerced, but she was lied to. Mm-hmm. We already know that Edward was a smooth talker. He had a confidence that showed he believed he could get whatever he wanted, and that gave him a very convincing way of speaking. At one point later on, his secretary, Charles, would write that Edward, quote, was a master in the art of persuading. He seldom failed if he could get his victim into conversation, end quote. This seems to apply to Ellen's case. Though, if you were on Team Edward, you weren't calling her a victim, you were calling her Mrs. Wakefield. So the point remained, since she went along willingly, but under false pretenses, did that fall under the notion of use of force? To this court, no, it didn't. And on grounds of not enough evidence of force, that aspect of the charge was actually dismissed. No, but they weren't as lucky in other areas, though. Guilt was assigned to both Edward and William for the abduction, and Frances was found guilty along with her stepsons in the conspiracy aspect of it all. In a surprising turn of events, the Turners decided to stop the proceedings against Frances after she had been found guilty, meaning she received no sentencing, only the humiliation and loss of social standing that came with being associated with the circus. Basically, she was ruined, but not imprisoned. At the third phase of the trial, where sentencing was carried out at the Court of the King's Bench in London that May, the boys didn't receive any sympathy from the Turners. They received sentences of three years each, with Edward going to Newgate in London and William to Lancaster Castle. For William and Francis, this marked the end of their association with the Turner abduction. But, while Francis dealt with the embarrassment of her guilt, a separate sadness touched William's life. While he was in prison, his wife gave birth to a daughter, And this should have been joyous news for him, and maybe it was. But unfortunately, six months later, he received word that his wife had fallen ill and passed away. Not what you want to hear at any point, but given that he spent almost his entire marriage in police custody, it had to make it harder. No, life was not shining too brightly on the family. But for Edward, there was one hurdle left. He was still married to Ellen. Oh. Yeah, he was, you know, in prison because he abducted her, but they were still actually married. Um, this wasn't something that her family wanted to allow to continue. I'm sure you can imagine. Understandably, yeah. Yeah. Before he knew it, he was being called up at the end of May to an annulment hearing. Only Parliament could dissolve the marriage, and Edward, by now, knew that this was inevitable, but that didn't mean that he liked it. Still, on June 17th, the never-consummated marriage was ended when royal assent was given to the act declaring it null and void. Thus, our main man, Edward, sat in prison, and Ellen was finally free from being called Mrs. Wakefield, no matter how sad that made him. Ellen didn't have to wait very long for her life to be sorted out, actually. You know, though the details of her life after the spotlight of the courtroom are scant, we can identify certain things, such as she was able to find a legitimate husband. On January 14, 1828, Ellen Turner married Thomas Lee, a member of Parliament, who you may recall we mentioned earlier, was friendly with her father and tried to help him lure Edward out of France. At the time of the marriage, Ellen was 17 and her husband was 35, so that means that their age gap was actually larger than Ellen and Edward's. Lee was also, it should be said, Lee of Lyme Park, which made Ellen the mistress of Lyme Hall. Now, where are our Jane Austen lovers out there? Mr. Darcy's Pemberley in the 1995 BBC version of Pride and Prejudice, the really famous one that had Colin Firth in it. Mm, well, Colin Firth. that is Thomas and Ellen's house. 
if you look at that now, think of who actually used to live there. It's mm -hmm. not too shabby. But unfortunately, in a sad turn of events, Ellen passed away at the age of 19 in 1830, leaving behind a deeply grieving husband and an infant daughter, also named Ellen. When Christine and I were discussing this topic and she started filling me in on things that happened to Ellen or William's wife and all these things, I'm like, why is everyone dying? Why yeah. is everyone dying before like the age of 20? This is so depressing. And can we just point out that Ellen died? Here's, here's a little tidbit for you. Mm. Ellen died the same year that Edward got out of prison. I mean, yeah, everybody dies. That's basically Christine. That's how Christine told me about this story. She's like, everybody dies. I'm like, I don't really, okay. Because I have, I have a feeling that Edward was probably saddened when he heard the news because he was a, he was a strange man, but I don't think he was malicious. No, I think, no, no, he was not. And I, he liked Ellen. He did, definitely. He did. He liked her. I think he would have been very happy with her and her money, but very happy with her. And But let's not get ahead of ourselves, Liz. Uh, for Edward is still 1827 in our story. It's yes. He's still fresh in jail, biding his time. So what did he do behind bars? And was he a different man when he came out? Did he ever manage to shake his ruined reputation? What did Australia, Canada, and New Zealand have to do with the gentlemanly abductor of England? And one more. There's a quote from one of his letters inscribed on his tombstone. It says, quote, The utmost happiness God vouchsafes to man on earth, the realization of his own idea. So what idea did he see realized that was so important it was etched on his marker? All this next week when we take a look at Edward's life after abduction. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.